The next commandment is verse 11. You must not make use of the name of Yahweh your God for worthless purposes, for Yahweh will not exonerate anyone who abuses his name that way. This basically is a commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Now remember back in Exodus, I told you that the word name communicates character, which means you're never allowed to do anything that misrepresents the character of God. (laughs) It's not just don't use it as a swear word or make false promises. It's meaning that anytime I am supposed to represent the character of God, but I'm not representing the character of God, then I've treated his character as empty, vain. And that word vain comes from a Greek or a Hebrew word called hevel. And hevel means smoke. And it doesn't just mean smoke in the way that it's more of an idea of smoke. It means that you see smoke and you go to grab it and it just goes through your hands and disappears. It's empty. It looks concrete. It looks amazing. But when you grab it, there's nothing there. So it means that you use the character of God in such a way that it looks like something, but when people go to trust in it, depend upon it, love it, be in a relationship with them, they just grasp nothingness, and it leaves them empty. Do you present Yahweh in such a way that he looks amazing or he looks like one thing, but ultimately when you give it to somebody else, it leaves them completely empty and they have nothing to grasp? And that could be through your hypocrisy, it could be through your sin, it could be through your disobedience, it could be through your flowery words, but your empty life. That's basically what it means. It does include swearing and swearing by God's name and that kind of stuff, but the heart of it, it means that. The other sense that it means going into the land, a more specific meaning of the land, is that names also communicated power. So in the ancient world, and even up into the Greek and the Roman time period, they believed that if you knew the name of something, that gave you power. And I already talked about this with Balaam. Okay, with Balaam, if, like Rumpelstiltskin, if I know the name of a being, then I can either manipulate that being or I can extract the power out of that being. So if I know the secret name of Baal, that will somehow give me magical ritual control over the storm. If I know the secret name of a knot, that will give me some kind of ritual secret control over war and victories and battles. And so if Yahweh truly is this incredible God, then I really want to know the name of Yahweh. And I'm going to use the name Yahweh because if he's one of the most powerful gods, then his name is going to be powerful, which is going to give me power. And then I can use it in incantations, I can use it in rituals to manipulate creation and have even more power and get what I want. Now, we all know that that's not how it works. You don't get what you want just because I know how to use Yahweh in the right incantations. But it doesn't matter if it works or not. It only matters that that's the way I'm treating him in my life, in my head, in my mind. When my daughter thinks that she can turn on her cuteness and manipulate me, and it doesn't work, but the fact that she thinks it will work says something about that our relationship is not good. Does that make sense? And there's something not right there. I'm not saying our relationship is totally broken in the room, but she's only three years old. But there's something not right there in the way she understands our relationship. And so God is not saying, this works. God is saying, this is the way that you think about me, and about me is not a relationship for you of love. 
I am a tool to gain you power and control over the things that you want to have control and power over to get what you want. You should, you're not going to do that. You're not allowed to present me in such a way that I become empty to other people, and you're not allowed to take my name and use it to manipulate and get what you want over creation. And they're going to be very tempted to do that when they go in the land because they're encountering lots of people who do that with the names of their gods. And it'd be very easy to think, okay, I'm not going to go worship another god because my god is more powerful than everybody else's god, but because I have this more powerful god, now I'm going to have even more than what they have. And it becomes less about the gratitude of a God who blesses you and more about how many times I can pull that jackpack, jackpot handle to get even more that I want out of. Is God a good relational God that you are just incredibly blessed to get what you have from him in a relationship? Or is it God that you believe if you pull a handle as many times in the right way as you can, then he'll just keep popping off the gifts? And this is the question the prophets are going to ask later. Israel, this entire time that you were in the land, did you love the giver or did you love the gift? So the book of Job is asking, Job, did you love the giver or do you love the gift? The Satan, who comes to God in the beginning, says that Job only loves the gifts, but not the giver. The greater the gift, the more tempted you are to only go to Yahweh because you want more. God bless America, and God has given us many blessings. But are you trying to work the system to get more blessings of God? Or are you truly in love with God, and you're so thankful for the fact that you get to live in a country like this when so many other people don't? And even if God took it all away, you still would be in love with it. And this is what Augustine talked about in a book he called The City of God. And when the Roman Empire is collapsing, everybody's like, oh, what are we going to do now? Everything's going to hell in the handbasket, and we're losing everything, and the economy is collapsing, and, and now I'm going to... He says, your citizenship is in heaven with God, not the Roman Empire. Where is our citizenship at? Are we Americans, or are we children of God in the kingdom of God? Now, that doesn't mean we just throw America to the side and we don't value America and we don't love Americans because ultimately we're called to expand the garden, be a blessing to the world, and love my neighbor as myself. But it is all about disordered love. Disordered love. Disordered citizenship. Verse 12. Be careful to observe the Sabbath day just as Yahweh your God has commanded you. You are to work and do all your tasks in six days, but in the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. On that day you must do not, not do any work, you, your son, and your daughter, and your male slave, and your female slave, your ox, your donkey, your other animals, and foreigners who live with you, so that your male and female slaves, like you yourself, may have rest. Recall that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and that Yahweh your God brought you to their out of there by the strength and power. That is why Yahweh your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. We talked about this once again in another um, Exodus. But remember the Sabbath was a blessing. When you're a slave, and even when you're not a slave in the ancient world, you're working every single day of the week because that's what's necessary to survive. So when God says don't work on the seventh day, that's a blessing to you. You don't have to work. I'm going to give you a gift. 
the Sabbath is first and foremost, well, not first and foremost, first and second, right up there with the other one, about a blessing to you of not being a slave every day of the week. But the second thing is, you really do have to work every single day of the week in order to survive. Yet on this day, you're not. So it also becomes an act of trust in Yahweh. But ultimately, the Sabbath is this. It's ceasing from your work to spend time with Yahweh. Now, we talked about this a while ago. It doesn't mean that you are to cease working completely because work is any movement whatsoever. Now, for them, it kind of did because all their work was enslaving and exhausting and survival and that kind of stuff. Okay, If anybody's ever worked on a farm, there's nothing enjoyable about any of it. (laughs) Now, there is an enjoyment of like, wow, I've completed this task, the reward of it, the, the healthy animal, the byproduct, but nobody's like, yay, I get to shovel poop in the barn today. Okay, or yay, I get to go out in the middle of winter and find eggs of the chicken in frozen poop. Okay, there's nothing enjoyable about that. For them, that's true. Today, we have found enjoyableness out of like gardening and, and building, restoring furniture, that kind of stuff. It's a little different today. The main idea of the Sabbath is not that you just stop working completely and do nothing and sit on the couch and then you watch football, but you're not working at least. the main point is to cease from the things that stress you and keep you from connecting with Yahweh so that you can connect to Yahweh so that you go back to the world not stressing and worrying and slaving because you realize that life will still be okay if that stuff doesn't get done does that make sense? Because we know people who obey the Sabbath and they go to church and they're still not really connecting with Yahweh and they're real stressed out. And even after church, they're still stressed out and still not trusting Him. We know people go on vacation, do nothing but sit on the beach. But all they can think about is all the things they're not getting done at work. If gardening helps you connect with Yahweh so that you can stop stressing, worrying about life and actually spend time praying, then that's the Sabbath for you. And the Sabbath also involves community. It also involves community. The reason they had a day, because it's too hard for everybody trying to survive in the world to get to the tabernacle. But you and I are told that every day and every moment is a Sabbath because the Sabbath is in us, Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is that I am to rest from my work that stresses me out and prevents me from trusting in God so that I may rest in the arms and the sovereignty and the love of God, so that when I come out of that rest, and hopefully you never come out of that rest, I am now restful and able to go into the chaos of the world with hope and trust and confidence and contentment and satisfaction that everything will be okay because my God has me and He is in control and everything's good. And whatever you need to do in community, to connect with Yahweh and rest in Him, that's what the Sabbath is. For them, farming got in the way of resting with God. For us, it could be something else. Sometimes just turning your phone off is rest. And as entertaining and non-working as Facebook is, it is not restful. And so the question that you need to ask God is, if Christ truly is in me every single moment and the Sabbath for me is space, time, and matter, everywhere I go, 
is the Sabbath. Every moment is the Sabbath. Every Christian I encounter with is the Sabbath. Then the question I need to ask is, it's impossible to cease from working if I'm the Sabbath all the time. The question is, what is it that is getting in my way from me truly resting and enjoying Yahweh every moment and every place that I am? What must I do to restore with Yahweh, to go back into the pinball machine of life and truly be content and satisfied because I am sitting in Christ? That's the Sabbath. So for them, as they go into the land, they're now going to be scattered. They're not going to all be camping around the tabernacle together. They're going to be scattered. And for them, coming to the Sabbath, to the tabernacle, is so crucial because they can't get to the tabernacle every single day. Because the tabernacle, for some of them, is going to be 50, 70 miles away from them. And so getting to some kind of a Sabbath, some kind of a, this is why they created synagogues, to have some kind of a Sabbath that was a little bit closer. And that's the reality. The question is for us, as now we no longer live, school, and go to church and work in the same neighborhood like our grandparents or great-grandparents do, we now go to work there and our children go there and our husband goes there and then we go to church over here. The question is, does Sabbath, so speak at church, not that Sunday as a Sabbath, but when we gather together as believers, that's the Sabbath, whether it's Wednesday night, Saturday night, are we making it important to us to come back to the community and gather together where we can learn, teach, encourage, and rest and be rejuvenated to go back on to life? And this is why Hebrews chapter 13 says, don't stop gathering together as some people have and therefore have fallen away. Meeting together with Christ in your devotions, surrounding yourself with the right things, and meeting together as a community should be important in this pinball machine scattered community of Christians that we have. And that's what it means to obey the Sabbath in the land. In the land. The first several commands that we've just gone through is about how do I love God? This is his love language. The next commandments are all about how do I love my neighbor? And the honor of the mother and father is the transition between it. It's the pivot. In some ways, it is loving God because it's an authoritative figure kind of a command. In other ways, it's loving your neighbor because it's not God, it's your mom and dad, which is your neighbor. So he goes on, he says this, verse 16, Honor your father and your mother just as Yahweh your God has commanded you to do so so that your days may be extended and that it may go well for you in the land and he is about to give you. Now this command basically says this. We already talked about this in Exodus 20, obviously, but in this context of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is commanding the children to honor their mother and father. But already we've been having seen the parents commanded to teach their children. And then when we get to Deuteronomy 6, the parents are commanded to teach the children. So as much as parents like to say, see, honor your mother and father, it's actually bookended with parents teach your children, parents teach your children. And the idea is your children should honor you no matter what because you gave them life. But it also is in the context of you should be living a life that is honoring God, maintaining his image, and teaching your children. And the greater context of Deuteronomy 
is a child who wants to obey their parents. They want to be taught by their parents because their parents are living out the covenant of God. They're so connected to God that they're reaping the blessings of it. And the children are looking at the pagans and they're looking at the parents and they're seeing a difference and they want to honor their mother and father. Now, this does not say children only honor your mother and father if they're doing the right thing. But the implication is it will be easier for your children to do it if you're doing the right thing. And there's a responsibility in both halves. We like to just emphasize the responsibility of the kids. But the problem is, how can you really expect that from children? I mean, children have to be taught everything. And they're ignorant of everything. And the only reason they're ever going to know anything is if you teach them. And yet, we fail as parents in America, and we don't live the Christian life. We don't reap the blessings. We don't have contentment and satisfaction. And then we punish our children because they're not honoring us. There's a reciprocal relationship going on there. In the same world that you, way, you cannot re- expect the world who is not saved to live obediently and respect you if you're not living the image of God. And the greater context says this, your children will want to honor you because you're living the image of God. And when you teach, it has meaning and depth because they see the benefits of it in your life that they don't see in the people around them in the pagan world. And the same thing that attracts the world into the body of Israel is supposed to be the same thing that makes your child say, I want to learn more, Mom and Dad. Teach me more. Does that make sense? It's a reciprocal relationship. We cannot expect little sinful children who don't know anything except for their own desire and nature to automatically somehow grow respect on their own when their parents are hypocrites. And this is what I face. There are lots of awesome parents in my school. And there are amazing parents and amazing kids in my school that I'm like, I want to sit down and eat with you and figure out how to be a better parent. And I hope my children grow up to be like your kids one day. But there are lots of parents that are also big-time hypocrites. And they talk about God. They pay thousands of dollars to send their kids to school to learn about God and all this kind of stuff. And those kids come to school and they tell me their parents are empty. Their parents are not living the life. They see it. And they don't want to be with their parents. They don't want to talk to them. Some of them want to be at school more than at home because they're not seeing it lived out at home, but they're seeing it at school. And other ones are throwing Christianity completely out of the window because their greatest example is saying it but not doing it. And the parents are emailing me and saying, my kid isn't respecting me. My kid isn't doing this. They're just constantly trying to leave the house all the time. And they don't respect me. And I'm like, try to respond to that email. (laughs) Yeah. But do you know what they're saying about you too? And I know that it's not all 100% correct. Because children distort things. But they don't make all that stuff up completely out of their own head either. And so the reality is, there's a reciprocal relationship that God's commanding here. In an Exodus sense, yes, the children are to respect you. Because you are the being that gave them life. And most parents 
are, will love their children unconditionally no matter what their children do. And the greater concept of that law is if you can't even respect the person who gave you life and loves you unconditionally, you're not going to respect any authority in the land. And you're not going to respect the God that you cannot see. And you're not going to respect governments. And people who don't respect any authority, well, they end up becoming a menace society. And they end up doing much more damage. And so the idea is, yes, how will you live long in the land, children, if you obey your parents and honor them? You won't be stoned to death. That's what God commanded of rebellious children. Why? Because it's better to stone one child who is disrespectful and dishonoring than to have that child grow up and murder the culture around them. Whether physically, literally, or emotionally, economically, bullying, all that kind of stuff. And we've seen what disrespectful children are growing in abundance in America with no respect for their children are doing to our country. So in that sense, honor your mother and father because my goodness, if you can't even honor the people who gave you life and love you unconditionally, who in the world are you even going to respect or honor or value? But on the other sense, in the context of Deuteronomy, it also says, parents, you have a responsibility to also have a relationship with your children so that they have a reason to want to honor you because they see a real, living, active relationship with God in your life and they see the true blessings of God and they see a parent that is truly satisfied and content that the world doesn't have and they want that. You're supposed to inspire your children. You are, this is some, this is a revelation that I've been kind of gaining in the last couple of weeks. In the beginning, you are your children's self-esteem. You are their moral compass. You are their inspiration. You are their guidance. And I know we know we have to teach and raise our children, but you need to understand that you are their self-esteem. You are their reason for doing things. You are their motivation. You are their inspiration. And the hope is that when they become fully developed images of God, that they will then look to God in that kind of way. They will be satisfied, mature enough to do it on their own. They won't need you anymore. But if you're not that to them, because God is not that to you, then they will have problems. They'll have problems. Does this make sense? This is what it means to live in the land. Because the land is good with blessings. America is unlike any other. Canaan was unlike any other. But the land also has incredible corruption, dysfunctionality, and pitfalls. And these commands are here because God is saying, this is my love language. And this is what it means to live long in the land. You have a choice. You can say, eh, or that's way too hard, or narrow it down to just not cussing, or you can embrace the full spirit and the full depth of the law, which is far greater than even what I said now, because it's Yahweh, and I know it's far greater, and really experience Yahweh to his fullest, and protect yourself from the world, and find rest in him. Does this make sense? So chapter 5, verse 17, 
you must not murder. Now this one's straightforward. This one's been dealt with over and over and over again all throughout the Bible up to this point. But remember, it doesn't strictly forbid killing because God is going to command them to kill the Canaanites, command them to do capital punishment. What it strictly forbids is murdering. Now, what is the definition of murder? Anytime you take anybody's life without a divine mandate from God. The idea is the only person who had gave you life is Yahweh. Therefore, the only person who can take your life away is Yahweh. And Yahweh is always just in taking your life away because he is the sovereign God of the universe who loves you so much he's willing to die for you and he is a good, just God who's executing punishment. Therefore, to go out and exterminate the Canaanites is not murder because God gave them a divine mandate to do that. To execute people who have murdered somebody or raped somebody, that's not murder because God gave you a divine mandate to do that only with a trial with elders and witnesses and evidences. So those are okay. But when we decide of our own volition that we want to take somebody else's life without a divine mandate from God, that's murder. Because we're not doing it to better the kingdom of God. We're not doing it to execute justice. We're doing it because we want it. And so the reality is this also includes without a trial. It doesn't matter whether they're truly guilty and God has truly said the capital punishment. If you go out and kill them, you've done it without a trial. You've done it without evidence. You've decided in your own mind, your own heart, that they're guilty. This includes losing your temper and going to extreme. And so the reality is murder is any time that you take somebody else's life without a divine mandate from God, period. Now, yes, that throws a little wrinkle into war. Well, big wrinkle, but we're not getting into that one. Now, once again, we talked about in Exodus that Christ is going to push us even further and say, if you have anger in your heart or slander somebody or, or attack them in any kind of way, that's murder, or even if you don't show them compassion. And so he pushes extreme because we now know one of the leading causes of death among teenage kids right now is bullying slandering, name-calling, um, su- suicide, basically, as a result of that. So there is murder is more comprehensive than that. It's attacking, it's killing somebody's soul through name-calling as well. But mainly the idea is as we're living in the covenant and we're moving into the promised land, the whole point of the covenant was to give people life in a land of blessing. Murder violates the covenant because now you're removing the image of God that he placed in the land, and you have no right to do that. But you're also taking the life away from somebody and the blessings of the covenant from them that you have no right to do that. And so it's not just the eliminating of a life, it's eliminating of life to the fullest, the blessings, all those things that God is giving them. You've decided that you don't want them to have it, so you're taking it away. And so the major sin here is that what God has said shall exist. You've said, no, I'm going to take it because I want it to be gone. And so you're violating the covenant and you're taking the blessings in the land from people that the covenant promised to give that to them. You have no right to decide 
whether somebody enjoys the covenant blessings or not. Chapter 5, verse 18. You must not commit adultery. Now, adultery is sexual intercourse with one or both partners are married. So an affair or adultery doesn't mean that you have to necessarily be married, but that you're participating with somebody in marriage. The reason this is so emphasized is because the only other covenant that you're ever going to make in your life other than the one with God is your marriage covenant. And the idea is if you can't honor the marriage covenant, you're going to have a hard time honoring the covenant with God. It is very much held up in the sense of faithfulness to covenants. And that now you're entering into a covenant with Yahweh, which also automatically means you're entering into a covenant with other people. You have to realize that the minute you make a covenant with Yahweh, you're automatically making covenant with all the other covenant people with Yahweh, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your faithfulness to them is held up as the exact same level as your faithfulness to God, because to be unfaithful to the people within the covenant is to be unfaithful to the covenant maker and the covenant giver. And so this is held up big time because adultery destroys marriage, it destroys family, it destroys trust, and therefore it affects the greater community within the covenant, and it affects the blessings. And so what God is basically emphasizing is that faithfulness is to permeate every single relationship that you have. That faithfulness to God automatically means faithfulness to everybody else. And this covenant that you made is the most ultimate example of faithfulness. Now, once again, if Christ pushed murder to anger and said that's just as bad, then he also said, you've heard it said, do not commit affairs, but I tell you, do not even have lust. And so what is lust? Lust is any time that you're objectifying somebody else for your own desires. You can lust within a marriage with your own spouse. If you're using your own spouse to gratify your own desires, then that's lust. And that's taking it too far. And so basically the idea is that the covenant is about serving other people. It's not about objectifying other people. God is forbidding you objectifying anybody else for your own purposes, your own desires, And he's also forbidding that you break faithfulness with anybody that you promise to be faithful to them. And God takes this pretty seriously. Verse 19. You must not steal. Once again, as we talked about in Exodus, this is pretty obvious. But remember, stealing is not just physical objects. Theft is anything. So I can steal somebody's objects, their material. I can steal their time by constantly being late all the time and make them wait on me or cheating the clock at work or whatever. I can steal people's emotions by being that person who just always sucks them dry with all my problems all the time and I never ever feed into them or give them anything. And I can, I can drain them in any kind of way. Theft is any time that I take your emotional resources, your mental resources, your physical resources, your materialistic resources from you in an objectifying kind of a sense. Now, there's always a time and a place where I'm going to be more depressed, more needy, got more problems, and I'm going to vent and maybe drain my friend more. But the idea is that those should be seasons. And it means that I should be there for them too when they need me more than normal. But if you're that person that's always, always taking, 
then that's theft. That's stealing. But at the same time, the primary focus here in light of Deuteronomy 24 is not just the stealing in the way we think of it, but actual physical abduction of people, kidnapping. And so what God is strictly forbidding here is taking somebody else's life from them, take, kidnapping them, um, the sex slave trade, slavery, that kind of stuff. That's what God is going to focus mostly on throughout the Bible because the physical things is one thing, but taking somebody's life is another. So this is, actually deals with more like kidnapping, sex slave trade. Anytime you abduct somebody and take them from their family, or you force them into a situation to serve you, that's stealing from them. Because that's the most ultimate theft. People can typically recover emotionally. People can typically recover materialistically. But the most ultimate form of theft, theft is forcing somebody into some kind of a slavery where their entire life is now used to serve you and your purposes. And so God is not just forbidding murder, the taking of their life completely, but he's forbidding the theft, the kidnapping, the slavery, the abduction of their life, where their entire life is wasted in the service of you. Now, we don't often think of kidnapping as theft, but it is. It's the most ultimate form of theft because they can't recover that. They can't recover that in any kind of a way. And so God is basically saying any world that allows for slavery, and remember we talked about this next, slavery in the ancient world was not like it was in American history. It was more like a bankruptcy kind of thing. And slaves had rights and they were protected. But at the same time, people were pretty sinful and that could even be abuse. I mean, we have employees, employers who abuse their employees, even in America with all of our rights and protections. And so the reality is, slavery, kidnapping was a very big business in the ancient world. And in fact, it's become one of the largest businesses in the modern world now. Um, sex slave trade actually now makes more money than the drug industry. In the last five years, it surpassed the drug industry. It is one of the biggest money makers in the world right now today. So the reality is God takes this pretty seriously because this is the total theft of somebody's life and that breaks covenant. Remember, the covenant is about protecting people's life, giving them blessings in the land, and if you're in the land taking people's lives, that's violating the ultimate principle of the covenant. Verse 20, you must not offer false testimony against another. Now remember, this one doesn't specifically deal with lying. Like, no, I did not steal the cookies, Mom. That's typically how we teach it. This mostly deals with a court law. So you're in court and you're bearing false testimony against somebody. And so you're making somebody else out to be something that they're not so that the law will prosecute them. This isn't just, see, lying, yes, I can give great examples of how lying can destroy people's lives. But ultimately, false testimony against somebody in a court system is the most ultimate sense of false testimony and lying. Because you're actually testifying against them in a way that they're not truly guilty that's going to ruin their life, or you're testifying for them that's not completely accurate so that they'll be let off when they should be punishing which is going to seriously affect the life of the community. 
So when innocent people are going to jail, when guilty people are being let loose, that's the most ultimate form of false testimony because that is seriously affecting society. Yes, lying can affect society, but not the same as innocent people going to jail and guilty people being let free. And basically, we know this today as the corruption of the court system. And I think that most of us realize that when most business people now say that lying is okay to get ahead in business and that bearing false testimonies against people in court system is all a matter of how much money, this is seriously affecting America. It's seriously affecting the way that things are functioning. And, and that's what God is specifically talking about. But the other thing he's mostly interested in is a false reputation. So it's not just the lying about your selfishness. The idea is if you're not even allowed to bear false testimony against somebody, you're not even allowed to do the other thing. The problem is that, yes, these commands are what we've taught, but we've aimed so low. God has aimed his commands so much higher, and it implies, well, if you're not even allowed to do kidnapping, then obviously you can't steal the stapler from work. So, But we just kind of deal with the stealing of ice cream and candy and that kind of stuff. We don't really aim as high as God. Yes, God doesn't want you lying about stealing things or lying about where you were at night to your parents, that kind of stuff. But that's still so low compared to false testimony. False testimony is so much higher than that. And the idea is if you're not even allowed to do that, then you shouldn't even be lying to your parents about what you're doing and that kind of stuff. And the problem is a lot of our Sunday school examples are just so low compared to what God put them at. Because false testimony actually deals more with gossip. It's so interesting that a lot of people will teach their kids not to lie in those blatant lies, but then so many people gossip, and they don't really think about it. Because that's destroying somebody's reputation and character. That's destroying the life of the covenant community. And so when you're like, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what Becky just did, the reality is you're spreading this image. Now, even if Becky really did do that, and it's a really bad thing, and you think everybody should know so they'll be protected from Becky, the reality is if you tell that story to everybody, and that's the only story you tell about Becky all the time, everybody's going to get the impression that's what Becky's like all the time. And all of us have moments in our life that if somebody took a snapshot of the, the temper in us or the, the selfishness or the anger, we would not like that. Did we really truly do it? Yes. But if everybody shared that picture with everybody that they ever saw, then everybody would get the impression that's what you're like all the time. And that's a false testimony. And that destroys your life way more than just little lies. And so the reality is these are so much more comprehensive. This has to do with not just selfishness, but the way that you're relating to other people in the covenant community and ultimately the kind of a life that you're paving for other people in the covenant community. A lot of lying can just be individual and only harm you and maybe one other person most of your life. But false testimony, gossiping, that destroys people in large numbers of people in the covenant community forever. Because it's not just destroying Becky, but it's destroying everybody else's image of Becky. And maybe Becky has a lot to contribute to a lot of people, but they'll never experience that because now they've got this limited perspective because of your gossip. And so these things are so much more, they're, they're about the entire covenant community. And the implications, if you're not allowed to treat the covenant community like that, 
then ultimately your selfishness on the little things will be curbed. They will be dealt with. 